Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we are going to discuss one of our favorite things to discuss in this space, a video game related lawsuit and an interesting one at that. What you are looking at right now is not an image from Ubisoft's Rainbow Six Siege, but in fact a mobile game made by Alibaba subsidiary ejoy.com called Area F2. Now, if that looks pretty similar to what you might recognize from Rainbow Six Siege, that's because it is. And in fact, Ubisoft has taken offense to that similarity. I've pulled up an article from Bloomberg that came out a couple of days ago that says Ubisoft sues Apple and Google over Alibaba's Rainbow Six ripoff. Now, there's so many things going on here, and I want to talk about them. But first, I have to note that Bloomberg did not link to the court filing. And that's always a problem. Journalists, please link to the court filings. It makes this kind of analysis so much easier. But without that court filing, we basically have to piece together exactly what the claim is. And Bloomberg seems to have been the originator of this. They found this. It was filed in Los Angeles. It is referenced as a federal court claim, which we would expect as a copyright claim. And that means that we can take certain assumptions about it. We can make the assumption that it's a federal court. It's the circuit court. It is in the Ninth Circuit. Uh, in the federal court system. So we can look at some Ninth Circuit precedent on these kinds of questions and we can proceed from there. What we can't do is specifically identify the legal claims that are made because they are all coming through the filter of this Bloomberg journalist. And in fact, I looked at a number of other articles on this question and they all referenced this Bloomberg article as kind of the nexus point, the foundation from which all of their reporting was springing. So we're going to use it as our foundation, but there isn't a lot to go on here. The second thing that I'm going to point out, and we're going to talk about it at the end of this video, is that it's worth noting that Ubisoft isn't suing the developer of the game they are alleging to be cloning their Rainbow Six Siege game. They are instead suing Google and Apple as essentially the runners of the stores on the digital interfaces that people can purchase the eJoy game, Area F2, on. That's interesting in and of itself, and we will talk about that question as well. But it's worth noting because Google and Apple, obviously much bigger players than eJoy, certainly, and although Alibaba Holdings Group is a larger organization, might be difficult to reach in China. Reading the article, it says Ubisoft Entertainment SA sued Apple Inc. and Google LLC, accusing the companies of selling a ripoff of its popular video game, Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six colon Siege. Sorry, I forgot the Tom Clancy's. I always do when I'm looking through my libraries. That's my fault, Ubisoft. I apologize. Area F2, created by Alibaba Group Holding Limited, eJoy.com, is a near carbon copy of Rainbow Six Siege, and that can't seriously be disputed, Ubisoft said, in a complaint filed Friday in federal court in Los Angeles. Virtually every aspect of AF2 is copied from R6S, from the operator selection screen to the final scoring screen and everything in between. Ubisoft said it has notified Apple and Google that Area F2 is infringing its copyrights, but that the companies have refused to remove the game from the Google Play and Apple app stores. That's basically all we get from Bloomberg here. Ubisoft filed a federal claim against Google and Apple for selling this Area F2 game on their digital store interfaces and they say it can't be disputed that it is copyright infringing, and they tried to get Google and Apple to take it down. Now, for those of you who have been in virtual legality before, you know that one of the things that I often do is I give quotes 
to various sources around the internet that ask me legal questions about these items. One of those that I give a lot of quotes to is a website by the name of Game Daily Biz. If you are finding yourself here watching these videos in virtual legality, I highly recommend adding Game Daily Biz to your regular rotation of uh, websites to review on these topics. They look at things from the same perspective that we do with respect to business, especially as well as law when they ask me to opine on these things. But they put up an article shortly after this, yesterday, in fact, that said Ubisoft sues Apple and Google over Rainbow Six Siege clone. And attorney Richard Hogue, hey, that's me, talks to Game Daily Biz about the basis of the lawsuit and how Ubisoft can prove copyright infringement in court. The game is called Area F2 and is developed by Ejoy, a subsidiary of the Alibaba Group, a tech conglomerate based out of China. That's right. If we go, we look at Alibaba, you can see it's a Chinese company. They say their principal executive offices are located in China. They're a Chinese company, and that is part of the story here. A lot of people come into virtual legality, put comments on my videos, asking me about jurisdictional questions. Hey, can this YouTuber be sued where they live? Can they be sued in the United States? Can XYZ be sued over here or sued over there? The answer is to all of these questions that whenever, especially when you're engaging in business, you're going to have contact points in a number of different locations. It's going to be where you're headquartered. It's going to be where you sell things into. It might be where you have contracts with people that do the selling for you. And so there are a number of places where you can generally bring a lawsuit against someone that is doing business, especially an international company that is doing business across country lines. But... If you are a Chinese company headquartered in China, it's going to be more difficult to enforce your claims against that company because it's just going to be difficult to go and get their assets. It's going to be difficult to enjoin them from doing certain things because you actually need to get that nation's court system and law enforcement apparatus on board with even a decision in your favor. So one of the things that you do if you've got a jurisdiction that maybe won't be so friendly to even a valid claim that you have is you go search for other parties or you go search for other jurisdictions, other courts that you can bring the claim up at and potentially get a better resolution for whatever it is that is bothering you. In this particular case, I think that Ubisoft looked at this and said, well, Alibaba Group's a little bit hard to get to in China. Ejoy itself might be able to separate its assets out from Alibaba Group because in order to get to Alibaba Group's assets, you essentially have to go through a complaint at the Ejoy level and then prove that you should also be able to go grab the assets at the higher level. Ejoy probably isn't capitalized in a way that would make Ubisoft happy. And so they start looking for other parties. And that's part of the story here is that they say, oh, one of the parties we can go after is Google and Apple who are selling this game, especially into the United States, but all across the globe. And they have deep pockets. They have a lot of money. They have a whole lot of money. And if we can go and we can win a claim against them, that could be very lucrative for us. And we could get them to stop distributing the game. And then it doesn't matter whether eJoy has made this game, because if you cut off the apparatus for distribution, then basically you won the day anyway. So I think that's Ubisoft's strategy here. I think that's what they were looking at when they decided to make this kind of claim, but it does add an extra layer of difficulty to what they are trying to show, which we will talk about as well. This article continues in Game Daily Biz. It says, looking at various comparison videos, such as this one by YouTuber user Nikki San, it's impossible to deny the similarities of the two games. And we can pull up that video. I've got it going a little bit faster than normal here, but you can absolutely see the connection between these two products. That was Siege. This is Area F2. Obviously, the interfaces look very similar. 
The gameplay, as we will see, looks very similar. They start out by showing what a UAV looks like in Rainbow Six Siege. You're rolling around as this little robot guy, and you're potentially getting access to areas that you wouldn't be able to get to if you weren't a little robot guy, if you haven't played Siege. And we can see in Area F2, yes, you can play as a little robot guy. Obviously, it looks a little bit different. They're on mobile. They've got those buttons clearly on the screen. But a lot of it looks the same. And if I'm being honest, I look at these two videos, and if you didn't have those cards up, and I wasn't cognizant, as a judge would necessarily be, of the differences between a console setup and a mobile setup in terms of graphical performance, I would be hard-pressed to tell you that Area F2 isn't Rainbow Six Siege and vice versa, right? These things do look a lot alike. But that's not really the end of the story. It's not just whether or not they look alike. It's also how much copyright can protect what you have copyright in. So if you're Ubisoft, you don't just get to protect everything related to the possibility of uh, attacking teams in a suburban or urban environment. You only get copyright to the expression of that idea that you have put forth in your Rainbow Six Siege product. Or as I say in the Game Daily Biz article, clones aren't illegal per se. Copyright cannot protect an idea itself. Two teams of armed fighters battle in destructible urban-suburban environments, but only the expression of that idea. If we go and we look at how the Copyright Office itself talks about this, it says copyright does not protect facts, ideas, systems, methods of operation, although it may protect the way that those things are expressed. As we see in video games, we usually say, you can't copyright the rules, right? You can make a game about chess if you use your own art and things because chess is just a rule set. You can make something that uses the rules that are similar to another as long as you aren't expressing it in an identical or as we will see substantially similar way to the other expression but that becomes a very difficult thing for the law to untangle it says in general most courts will employ some version of a substantial similarity test looking to see whether the allegedly infringing game is so similar in user interface style or other elements, the parenthetical is important here, that can be protected as to be virtually indistinguishable from the original work. Said another way, copyright only protects certain things. It only protects those expressions. It definitely protects your assets. It definitely protects your specific art, your specific language. But it also protects a little bit more. Hoag Me said that historically, the law has leaned in favor of clones. And that has indeed been the case. If we go back, to some of the original court cases on video games, we can see this writ large. I've got a court case, Atari versus Amusement World, from 1981 that is summarized here on a website called Patent Arcade. It says, in one of the earliest video game cases, Atari, the holder of copyright in the arcade game Asteroids, sued Amusement World for copyright infringement based on Amusement World's video game Meteors. This early case reaffirms that while video games are protectable as audiovisual works, Copyright protection does not extend to the underlying idea behind the video game, but rather protects only the specific expression of that idea. At the outset, the court noted a variety of similarities between the games. There are three sizes of rocks. The rocks appear in waves. Larger rocks move more slowly than smaller ones. When hit, a large rock splits into two medium rocks. A medium rock splits into two small ones, and a small rock disappears. Look at that. Look at the rules set up for these two games. A large rock splits into two mediums, a medium splits into two smalls, and a small rock disappears. That is the crux of what Asteroids is. And the court 
looks at this and says, yep, that's a similarity. That's a similarity. That's a similarity. Hey, but there's also a lot of differences. Meteors is in color and asteroids is in black and white. Rocks and spaceships and meteors are shaded to appear three-dimensional, unlike the flat schematic figures in asteroids, and they tumble. And meteors has a background that looks like distant stars, etc., etc. Now I'm going to skip the part of the court case where they actually decide that video games are indeed copyright protectable, important, but not important to this conversation, and then get straight to the substantial similarity analysis because the court is going to find that Meteors is totally fine. Amusement World next argued that Atari was attempting to monopolize the use of the idea of a video game in which the player fights his way through asteroids and spaceships, which is an uncopyrightable idea. The court again sided with Atari, stating that when Atari copyrighted this particular expression of the game, he did not prevent others from using the idea of a game with asteroids. He prevented only the copying of the arbitrary design features that make plaintiff's expression of this idea unique. Video games are copyrightable. You don't just get to make the exact same thing. But Atari, when they attempted to demonstrate copying by showing access to its work asteroids, plus substantial similarity of the two works, the court provided the usual analysis of protectable material and indicated that the court must be careful not to interpret plaintiff's copyright as granting plaintiff a monopoly over those forms of expression that are inextricably associated with the idea of such a video game. Therefore, it is not enough to observe that there are a great number of similarities in expression between the two games. It is necessary to determine whether the similar forms of expression are forms of expression that simply cannot be avoided in any version of the basic idea of a video game involving space rocks. Based on the lists of similarities and differences, the court concluded that Meteors was not substantially similar to Asteroids, stating that most of the similarities were inevitable, given the requirements of the idea of a game involving a spaceship combating space rocks and given the technical demands of the medium of a video game. All these requirements of a video game in which the player combats space rocks and spaceships combine to dictate certain forms of expression that must appear in any version of such a game. In fact, these requirements account for most of the similarities between meteors and asteroids. Similarities so accounted for do not constitute copyright infringement because they are part of plaintiff's idea and are not protected by plaintiff's copyright or expression, right? But when you actually get to it, the actual rules of the game are stated to not be enough, even when copied, to get you to a place where the court will step in and declare infringement. Now that's 1981, right? But I finished this sentence by saying the law has leaned in favor of clones, but that trend has been changing a bit over the last decade or so. We've seen a Tetris clone be struck down as being too close to Tetris. And we've seen a case that I want to bring up here because it goes deeply into the questions that are at the heart of this particular case with Siege and Area F2 about a, a game on the right called Triple Town and a game on the left called Yeti Town. Now you can see they're obviously different. They have different art assets. There's not direct copying involved here. But the court decides that Yeti Town is a copyright infringement. Or more specifically, the court decides that it's a close enough question that it can't just be thrown out, right? All of these kinds of court cases are basically decided at the summary judgment stage, which if you aren't familiar with it in the law, is basically a place where the party getting sued usually can say, okay, court, assume that everything they say is true. I'm still not violating the law, so this court case should get kicked out. And in the past, based on precedents like asteroids versus meteors and the things that we just talked about, you would assume 
that most clones are going to be allowed as long as they aren't stealing assets. As the court describes here, it talks about the two game companies, talks about what they are making, talks about how they operate. And then it says, in both games, the placement and hierarchical transformation of objects progressively builds the game grid and earns points for the player. Eventually, the player achieves the goal of building a plane in Triple Town or a patch in Yeti Town. Players earn points along the way, but in both games also earn coins that permit them to purchase favorable objects or other strategic advantages at an in-game store. As players play either game, dialogue boxes pop up to explain game concepts. There are visual differences between the games, and the question in this case is not whether the games are similar, they certainly are, but whether that similarity amounts to an infringement of Spry Fox's copyright in Triple Town or an infringement of Triple Town's trademark or trade dress. In a motion to dismiss, Six Waves, that's the makers of Yeti Town, contend that Spry Fox's complaint fails to plausibly allege copyright or trademark infringement. So we then look at the analysis. The court then says a claim of copyright infringement, and it's worth noting that this is a Ninth Circuit case. So this is the circuit that Ubisoft has brought their complaint in. As a claim of copyright infringement requires a plaintiff to prove that it has a valid copyright on the work in question and that the defendant copied the work. There is also no serious dispute that Spry Fox has adequately alleged that Six Waves had access to Triple Town. That's one of the important questions here is whether the party that is alleged to have cloned the material had access to the first material, the originating material in question, because if they didn't have that access, you can have an issue where they essentially just developed a similar kind of thing completely separate from the original work. And it can't really be infringement that way because they can't prove that they ever looked at the original work. However, the issue here with respect to Area F2 and Siege and Yeti Town and Triple Town all relates to the substantial similarity test. Now it's worth noting here, we're looking at the Ninth Circuit and you might think that federal law would state explicitly how the court is to determine these kinds of questions. But the Reality is, is that that's not the case. The various circuit courts in the United States will have different interpretations, different ways of testing for viability or infringement in respect of specific laws. And so we're looking at the Ninth Circuit and they do something where they call it an extrinsic test and an intrinsic test. It says the extrinsic test considers the objective similarities, objective, between both the ideas inherent in the copyrighted work and the way that the work expresses those ideas. We're going to look at this more specifically, but to break that down for you, they're going to take those parts of Triple Town that they think copyright can protect, the expression of the idea, and they're going to look at how those things are treated in Yeti Town, extrinsically, objectively. But in order to be substantially similar, you also have to pass an intrinsic test in the Ninth Circuit. And they describe that as follows. They say the intrinsic test is a subjective comparison of the two works through the eyes of an ordinary observer, focusing on the total concept and feel of the two works. So you have to pass both tests to essentially lose on infringement. In this case, when we're looking at Siege and Area F2, it's pretty clear that they're going to easily pass the intrinsic test. As I said, if you don't give me those cards, I can't really tell the difference between those games. If you had me test a bunch of screenshots and you could otherwise normalize for the graphical differences between consoles and mobile devices... I would be hard-pressed to tell you which game was which. So an ordinary observer is probably going to be in the same boat. I look at a lot of video games in both my day job and my not day job, and I can't tell the difference. So they're probably going to win that. So what it winds up becoming a question on is the extrinsic test. 
those things that are protectable, do they get close enough on Yeti Town? Do they get close enough on Area F2 to cause a problem? This court case reads as follows on that point. The court can compare only the protected elements of a work to the allegedly infringing work. Copyright does not protect the ideas underlying a work or other aspects that are beyond the scope of the Copyright Act, as we have talked about. With these general principles in mind, the court turns to the two video games before the court. Before determining to what extent the idea inherent in Triple Town dictates its expression, it is necessary to separate its idea from its expression. Courts frequently acknowledge the difficulty of this task. It's virtually impossible. And so that's one of the reasons why you have me saying, hey, I don't know whether Area F2 is actually infringing on Rainbow Six Siege because this court decides this on Yeti Town. The previous court in 1981 decides that on Asteroids versus Meteors. And there's a long line of cases that follow after that that essentially says clones are okay. And so is it infringement? I don't know. The court continues, at this stage of the litigation where the court has only the complaint, again, this is a summary dismissal kind of action, its description of Triple Town and the accompanying screenshot images, the court concludes that the idea underlying Triple Town is that of a hierarchical matching game, one in which players create objects that are higher in the hierarchy by matching three objects that are lower in the hierarchy. Frustrating the player's efforts are antagonist objects, Aiding the player are objects that destroy unwanted or ill-placed objects. Spry Fox's copyright gives it no monopoly over this idea. What we just described, they can't prohibit others from enacting in their video games. Six Waves is free to create a video game based on that paragraph. Spry Fox expressed the idea underlying Triple Town in its own unique way. It shows an object hierarchy that progresses from grass to bushes to trees to houses and beyond. It shows a bear as the antagonist object and a bot as the object with the power to destroy others. It shows its own visual depiction of each of those objects. It then placed all of those objects on a field of play that resembles a field or meadow. These are protectable expressive elements. Now that actually takes a little bit to unpack as well. It's not that a meadow is an expressive element that no other video game company could use in this context. It's that all of these things together are expressive together. It's that the art that looks like a meadow can't be stolen. It's that bear and bot and this specific expression of hierarchy is something that the court says is worthy of protection. In a literary work like a novel or screenplay, the measurable objective elements that constitute expression include the plot, theme, dialogue, mood setting, pace, characters, and sequence of events. A video game much like a screenplay expressed in a film also has elements of plot, theme, dialogue, mood setting, pace, and character. Spry Fox took the idea underlying Triple Town and expressed it with its own characters, its own setting, and more. These objective elements of expression are within the scope of Spry Fox's copyright. Now, some of Spry Fox's expressive choices are not protectable because they are scenes of fair in many video games and often in games in general. That phrase means that in order to express this specific idea, these are the things that must be included. One of the cases early on in the respect of video games was in respect of a karate fighting competition. And the court held that you couldn't hold that wearing karate gear and doing chops and kicks was something that could be protected by your video game because the very notion of having a karate competition would preclude and would require you to have those elements in your game. Those things can't be protected because, again, the idea itself can't be protected. So you can already see the issue here when you look at this court case is that by 
describing the game solely as kind of the hierarchical mechanics, the rules of the game itself, they've basically said that the entirety of the field and meadow and bear and bot are something that is worthy of protection when maybe asteroids and meteors would suggest that that wasn't the case. The language that SpryFox uses in its in-game dialogue boxes is copyrightable, but the scope of protection for that language is thin. Basically, you can't copy it or you can't very close paraphrase it. Although the court need not decide the issue in this motion, it also appears that elements of Triple Town are not protectable because they're functional. Much as copyright does not protect ideas, it does not protect the functional processes that are indispensable to the idea inherent in a game. For example, Spry Fox's choice of a 6x6 game grid is not likely an expressive choice. A grid that is too small would make the game trivial. A grid that is too large would make it pointless. There is perhaps a range of functionality appropriate choices for the dimensions of the game grid. Perhaps a 7x7 or 6x7 grid would serve the game's purposes just as well, but it would extend copyright protection beyond its proper scope to afford protection to a functionally dictated choice like this one. Like the language Spry Fox uses in Tri Triple Town's dialogue boxes, the rules of the game are entitled to, at best, thin protection. Game rules are a hybrid of the concept of the game and functional considerations. For example, the rule that players progress up Triple Town's object hierarchy by forming groups of at least three adjacent objects is, in part, an extension of the idea of a matching game, and in part a functional consideration to make gameplay more interesting. Similarly, the notion of exchanging earned coins for strategic advantages is an idea inherent in the gameplay. A game designer could theoretically make expressive choices in presenting the rules of play. It could perhaps use creative language to express the rules, but that language as an expression of game rules would be entitled only to protection against nearly identical copying. The court also observes that while the title Triple Town is not itself copyrightable, the fact that Six Waves chose the title Yeti Town is potentially relevant to the substantial similarity inquiry. That's worth noting here because Area F2 does not actually invoke any notions of Rainbow Six Siege. So that's actually a point in Alibaba and Ejoy's favor is to say they didn't try to name it Siege. They didn't try to name it anything remotely similar to Siege. It's just known that it is Siege. Having determined which of the elements of Triple Town are protectable, Spry Fox's allegations are more than adequate to illustrate plausibly the objectively similar expression embodied in Yeti Town. The object hierarchy is similar. Progressing from grass to bush to tree to hut is similar to progressing from sapling to tree to tent to cabin. Perhaps more importantly, the object hierarchy coupled with the depiction of the field of play comprise a setting and theme that is similar to Triple Towns. A snowfield is not so different from a meadow. Bears and yetis are both wild creatures, and the construction of a plane is not plausibly, I believe this is supposed to say dissimilar, to the construction of a patch, at least as the two games depict those terms. Whether the choice of language is close enough, it might be plausibly similar. There are apparent differences in the game, but the court must focus on what is similar, not what is different, when comparing the works. With these objective similarities in protected expression, it is at least plausible that Spry Fox can pass the extrinsic test for substantial similarity. Note here, as we said, the court isn't actually saying that Triple Town wins. They're saying at this phase where Yeti Town is asking to have the court case dismissed, they can't dismiss it because it is at least plausible that Triple Town could win based on the logic that you see in this description. Then we get to intrinsic tests, and we already talked about this, but it's worth noting here. It is also plausible that Spry Fox can pass the intrinsic test. It is plausible that an ordinary observer, even after being instructed to ignore similarities that arise from unprotected ideas, would find that Yeti Town and Triple Town have a substantially similar total concept and feel. 
To illustrate that point, it is not necessary to go beyond the reports of video game bloggers that Spry Fox describes in its complaint. That's right. Those blogs that you write, that forum that you write in, those can be used in court by one of these video game companies. And if you haven't seen how Area F2 has been covered, it's just Rainbow Six Siege, three exclamation points. Rip Area F2, parenthetical Rainbow Six Siege Mobile. Area F2, Rainbow Six Siege Mobile. Rainbow Six Siege Mobile Gameplay, parenthetical. Area F2, this is from April 24th, 2020. Everybody has reported on this game as being Rainbow Six Siege Mobile. So yes, we talked about it. You're going to lose the intrinsic test. So what happens at the end of that story? Well, because they lose their ability to dismiss the case, because that is the functional basis on which their entire defense rests, they wind up selling all their stuff at Yeti Town to the Triple Town people. And that makes sense, right? When you lose a move for dismissal in that fashion, when it's the basis for your entire defense, you know that you need to settle. You know you need to get out of all this stuff. And that's how most court cases end. They either get kicked out or they settle. And that's probably not going to be different in this instance. But that's how we get to that trend has been changing a bit over the last decade or so. Courts are more willing to kind of stick their thumb on the scale and say, hey, this is maybe too close. And maybe we shouldn't allow clones like this. This article then says, as noted, the legal waters are choppy thanks to the idea versus expression argument, meaning that ideas cannot be copyrighted, but the expression of those ideas can. Now we get into the second part of this question. It's worth noting that the targets of Ubisoft's suit are Apple and Google and not eJoy or Alibaba. The argument appears to be that by allowing Area F2 in the App Store and Google Play Store, the companies are complicit in the alleged infringement. Hogue notes that financial motives could have also played a role in this decision. In short, it's likely that Apple and Google have deeper pockets than eJoy. It may also be easier for Ubisoft to assert jurisdiction and to find a friendly court to press their claim. That being said, by suing the stores instead of the developer, Ubisoft will now have to show that the stores were made aware of the infringement and still acted to help others, i.e. buyers, infringe on Ubisoft's materials. Given that Ubisoft winning the underlying case is still an open question, adding another layer of proof to their claim makes it even more difficult, right? We looked at a couple of cases now, and while I think there's probably a pretty good claim to be made by Ubisoft, especially based on Triple Town versus Yeti Town, based on Tetris versus Zio, I really do think that it isn't a slam dunk. So when you start to get into the question of can you prove secondary infringement, and again, thank you, Bloomberg, we're guessing at what Ubisoft is actually claiming specifically, it becomes difficult. It says, often an infringement case involves the owner of a copyrighted work and an individual who copied it without permission. However, sometimes a third party enables or supports the infringement. An example might be a store that sells copies of an infringing work or a company that helps market the infringing work. If this game, Area F2, is legitimately infringement, then Google and Apple benefiting, making money, making their 30% cut off of its sales after they've been told by Ubisoft, as Ubisoft says that they have done, that it is infringing, could certainly be deemed to be contributing to that infringement. But it's a lot more difficult than just that. Here is how Justia, and this is a summary of all court cases, tries to establish what secondary infringement actually is. And we've got a couple of red flags right off the get-go. The Copyright Act does not provide an explicit discussion of secondary liability for infringement. Uh Uh-oh. 
That means that for the most part, this doctrine is court created, which means that across the circuits and in different courts, you're going to get wildly different results. That's a problem in and of itself when you're trying to predict what will happen. However, federal courts have allowed copyright owners to present these theories, secondary infringement. Although federal laws are uniform nationwide, federal appellate courts are free to develop separate interpretations of the law unless the U.S. Supreme Court intervenes to resolve a conflict. The Supreme Court has not yet imposed a uniform test for copyright infringement, so different federal appellate courts have developed different standards for when copyright owners can hold third parties liable for such infringement. There are certain common features among the various tests, though. Most copyright owners will need to show that the third party intentionally or knowingly induced the infringement or provided the primary infringer with the means to commit the infringement. They're not going to win on an inducement claim. Right, Google and Apple didn't show up at Alibaba and say, you guys should totally clone Siege and we will sell it for you. They didn't do that. At best, what they did was they allowed the store to sell this after Ubisoft told them that it was infringing. So Ubisoft will show that Google and Apple knew that it was infringing and then they sold it anyway. This continues by saying, if the store recognizes that the work has duplicated the work of a copyright owner, it will be liable for secondary infringement if it agrees to sell copies of the infringing work. But note that it's recognizes, it's knows, it's they have to know that it's infringing. So ultimately, it winds up being an open question, right? I've pulled up a Ninth Circuit case, just a random one from last year, just to make sure we don't rely on Justia for these kinds of questions. And they identify the Ninth Circuit standard for contributory liability as follows has knowledge of another's infringement and either materially contributes to or induces that infringement. For purposes of this conversation, we will assume that having a store that helps traffic in infringing material constitutes material contribution sufficient to meet item two of the elements here. But has knowledge of another's infringement is an open question, right? Because Ubisoft can come to Google and Apple and say it's infringing. As a matter of fact, they almost certainly did using a DMCA takedown notice that we've now talked about for two weeks with respect to Sony and the Last of Us issue. Please check out those videos. And in fact, the DMCA was designed to allow YouTube and Apple and Steam and everyone else to get around contributory infringement. The main crux of the DMCA safe harbor provision here says, a service provider such as Google or Apple shall not be liable for monetary relief or except as provided in subsection J for injunctive or other equitable relief for infringement of copyright by reason of the storage at the direction of a user of material that resides on a system or network controlled or operated by or for the service provider. If they don't have actual knowledge of infringement, they aren't aware of facts or circumstances from which infringing activity is apparent. And once they get that knowledge or awareness, they take it down. Now, YouTube, Google, Apple, Steam, everyone else is so big now that it's almost impossible to prove actual knowledge. So the way this works in practice is, as Bloomberg says, Ubisoft sends a note to them, says, hey, Area F2 is infringing. Please take it down. They probably do it in a DMCA compliant way where they give the certifications and they give everything that is necessary for YouTube or Google or Apple or wherever to get the safe harbor that they need, that they can pull it down and they won't be liable for contributory infringement. And the story here is that Ubisoft tried that. They made them aware and they didn't do anything. In this article, it says, according to Bloomberg's report on the suit, Ubisoft did indeed send notice to Apple and Google, but the companies ignored it. And then I say, it sounds like Ubisoft issued a DMCA takedown or similar notice, as well as spoke through normal back channels. Ubisoft and Google and Apple are continuing business partners. 
Ubisoft has video games to sell. It would like to sell those video games on Apple and Google storefronts. So this is a big step for them. This tends to break relationships. You sue me, it tends to make things at least a little spicy for a short time, if not a long time. So this was a big step for them. But the stores refuse to take down the materials. Now, I also talk about it from the store's perspective. I say that makes sense from their perspective. They don't want to be in the habit of having to remove often lucrative clones. If you go on the App Store, if you go on the Google Play Store, you will see a lot of cloned video games. And a lot of those clones are perfectly fine, either because the original copyright holder looked at it and doesn't want to go through a litigation, or because they're separate enough that it isn't even a question. Either way, Google and Apple are making a lot of money off the sale of those clones. They don't want to be in the business of having them removed from their store, and they don't want to be in the business of letting these copyright holders know that they will respond to those takedowns with little more than a say-so from a company like Ubisoft. They don't want to set the precedent that they will listen to any infringement claim on the subject. So they don't listen to the DMCA. They are now potentially liable for contributory infringement. But as we already looked at, they have to have knowledge that the material is infringing. And one of the things that they can absolutely say is, look, we understand that's a close question, but we have also understood that copyright doesn't protect ideas, only expression. There's no indication from Ubisoft or anyone else that assets were stolen. And so we're not going to be in the business here at Google and Apple of adjudicating very complex legal matters. That's not our purview. That's the judiciary's purview. And so we don't have knowledge of infringement. Now, when you bring me a court case that says this is infringing, we will take it down immediately. But we also note that you aren't suing the company that's even responsible for it. So we're not entirely sure how you're going to establish that infringement. Maybe you do in our case, maybe you don't. Either way, we shouldn't be liable before we have that court case in our hands because who knows whether it's infringing until we're told by someone that can evaluate these very complex laws. And in fact, I finished this article by giving that quote. Sam Desitoff, the author of this article, asked me for my opinions on how this was likely to go. And after I gave him all of my quotes above, I said, hey, it's very difficult. It's very difficult for anybody to say how this will go because this bounces around all the time. And any given court is going to decide these things differently. And I say, any evaluation of the underlying infringement will be based on a dissection of the two games and could go either way, depending on the standards the court in question elects to use. However, best bet is still they settle. Potentially, the stores, Apple and Google, encourage eJoy to change Area F2 just enough to not look exactly like Siege. Alibaba and eJoy call it a marketing coup. Ubisoft says they were defending their intellectual property rights. And each side goes about its business. That's the most likely solution for all of this because Apple and Google doesn't want precedent on this. Ubisoft might, but might not want it enough to wind up really offending their business partners in Apple and Google. And what we're ultimately left with is probably not something that results in a clear decision, which if you're familiar with virtual legality is exactly the place where a lot of these intellectual property questions wind up. But it's still a fascinating question. It's a fascinating story. Thank you for everybody that brought it to my attention, either through my Twitter DMs, directly on Twitter public, through comments to the videos that I've done in this space. I very much appreciate being told what you all are interested in me talking about. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you like this video, please like, please subscribe. Tell folks that we are here. Share it around. Share it on forums elsewhere that you think people might be interested in this subject matter. We talk about these kinds of things, business and law through the lens of pop culture all the time. 
If you caught us on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it in its podcast form, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.